Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of again speaking with Dr. Jeffrey D. Long, who is Professor of Religion, Philosophy, and Asian Studies at Elizabethtown College. Jeffrey, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be back. Thank you for having this, me. Yeah, this certainly isn't your first rodeo. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. You've interviewed me for a few of my other books as well, and I'm always well, appreciative. Well, that's that's because you publish it so speedy a rate that that in in in, in three short years, I think you've been on three or four times. <laughs> so I think so. Though this book uh, is a little different from that. Uh, this book has been in the works for ten years. Uh, hmm. Among the things that slowed down my progress were all those other books. Um, this <laughs> kept getting put to the back, but I'm glad it's finally uh, been finished. Yes, fantastic. So, of course, uh, as you can see from the podcast notes, uh, listeners were talking about discovering Indian philosophy, an introduction to Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist thought. So, perhaps um, one question which may come to mind um, uh, to, to 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 potential readers who may wish to use the book for teaching or their own edification is um, certainly intros to Indic thought, Indian philosophy, Indian religion have been done, um, yet. I don't necessarily want to imply that there's no need for this book because clearly it's doing something differently or maybe even betterly, which is now a word. Um, what is the uh, proposition value? Like, like, what is it about this that's different from the dozen other intros to Indic thought? Okay, I, two things in particular that I, I would like to think recommend uh, this book, because there are many introductions to Indian philosophy and many very good introductions to Indian philosophy. I even mm. saw a couple of them in this one. Uh, but um, what I uh, what the, one aspect of this uh, has come out of my teaching experience at Elizabethtown College, which is mm. uh, if you're teaching undergraduates, uh, very frequently, um, certainly uh, uh, where I teach, uh, they have simply no background at all with this material. And so my aim was to write something with absolutely minimal jargon, either philosophical jargon uh, or India-related or South Asia-related jargon. I wanted it to be accessible to my students. And in fact, I'm planning to use it in a course um, called Discovering Indian Philosophy. And it, it has evolved out of my own teaching notes uh, through the years. Uh, another thing that I find very often about maybe it's three things. Another thing I find often about the uh, existing introductions to Indian philosophy, again, they're excellent, but I think all of the, all of us teach this material in our own particular way. We have particular strengths that we bring to it. We emphasize some things more and some things less. So I found that very often uh, when I, when I taught my uh, 
Indian philosophy course previously, rather than using or sticking with a single intro, I was cobbling together bits and pieces of several of them because this would be a really strong chapter in this particular book, but maybe it would be weak on something else, etc. And finally, uh, I would say in terms of substance, uh, what I would like, what I would like to think recommends this book is uh, there's a, a more in-depth coverage of Jain philosophy than I often find in uh, works on Indian philosophy. It's uh, either not treated at all or treated in a somewhat cursory fashion. Um, and because I have written on Jainism, I'm a scholar of Jain philosophy, among other things, uh, I wanted to highlight uh, the importance of the Jain contribution to the Indian conversation. So um, more emphasis on Ahinsa and uh, more emphasis on uh, what atheism and theism really mean, because um, it, it really comes down to how one defines God. And uh, as John Court and others have argued, there's a sense in which Jains are not atheists. They definitely believe in a sacred reality uh, that's very central to them, uh, but no creator deity, right? And so it, it puts a wrinkle on the whole atheism and theism conversation. This is a bit of a subtext of the whole book, but I think Jainism helps make that point very nicely. Uh, as does Buddhism. And then, of course, Anikantavada, which has been a, a topic of great interest to me through the years. It was my doctoral dissertation topic. So uh, I've underscored Jain philosophy, uh, I think, more than I typically see in works on Indian philosophy. Uh, and uh, I guess one last thing I would add is uh, one tends to see relatively little treatment of modern uh, or contemporary Indian philosophy in, in these works. They tend to focus on cl the classical. Um, while my presentation of the modern period is probably skewed by my own interests and background, uh, I have material there. I talk about people like Swami Vivekananda and Sri Aurobindo uh, and so on. And so uh, that is present in a way that I find that it often is not uh, in intros to Indian philosophy. So I, I, those are things that I would like to think uh, are strengths of the book. It's, you know, relative ease and simplicity in terms of, of getting the material across to people who are brand new to it, hopefully without oversimplifying, but, you know, drawing them into that conversation. Uh, the focus on the giant material and the focus on uh, at least a bit of modern material. Yeah, well, without question, um, uh, one of the one of the enjoyable aspects of the book is um, its accessibility, its uh, its conversational style, and you know, to my mind, good writing really is teaching. It's mm -hmm. it's teaching. It's it's accessible communication of ideas, and accessibility um, doesn't. Uh, accessibility need not in any way, shape, or form compromise erudition or complexity of thought. It's just a question of delivering it in a way, you know, uh, such that folks can understand it without a, a great deal of background information. Exactly. And so, I love that it's a it's 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 a natural teaching resource. It's it's the text itself is. Uh, functions as a classroom sort of tone, uh, which is great. I mean, I, uh, I think that's great because of accessibility. I also think there is a storytelling style to the writing. There is, mm -hmm. And I think storytelling is is uh, one of the most powerful and memorable ways of communicating ideas. And I, I don't think there is deep teaching without storytelling or and vice versa, probably deep storytelling without teaching. And so I think 
that that I mean the style is 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 um is probably would resonate with a great deal of um undergrads or really anybody interested in this stuff. And the other the other piece, I mean, there's lots I could say. I don't typically get too much into the weeds of the of the books that I read for the podcast, but the other piece is, you know, presenting Hindu Jain Buddhist thought as these these facets of a shared ecosystem that are very, very different. Yes. But they but they're they're all part of the same ecosystem. And I think that's something that's not necessarily underscored in a lot of intros to Hindu thought. Mm-hmm. I, I agree fully with that. And in fact, this was uh, somewhat of a conversation I had uh, between myself and uh, at least a conversation in my head between reviewers of early versions of the manuscript uh, and myself is that there was a there was an earlier period in our field where there was a, somewhat of a tendency towards an oversimplifying uh, in terms of the similarities of traditions, a kind of uh, collapsing them into kind of a perennial philosophy uh, and uh, without sufficient attention to difference. And what I found in our field is that we've corrected very much in the opposite direction where difference is greatly emphasized. And um, you know, to borrow, of course, the famous term from Buddhism, I was aiming for a middle path where uh, it could be seen that there is, I think, something that could be called a cohesive Indian philosophical conversation. And it's made up of different perspectives. There is difference. But a conversation also requires, well, you're conversing about something, right? There, There is some shared background of, of agreement uh, against which this conversation is happening. So uh, even the the much maligned Lokayatas, right, uh, their perspective is accepted in as much as the sensory perception pramana, right? The pratyaksha pramana is the basic one that everyone agrees upon. Say, well, yes, we understand you know, that this is how knowledge comes into uh, awareness and so on. And so uh, there's uh, there's some kind of, of background that needs to be understood as um, a, a relative unity in order for the diversity to then make sense, right? So, uh, okay, we know that Buddhists and Vedantins disagree, but what are they disagreeing about and why is it important and why does it matter? Uh, and where does it fit into questions like soteriology, which I think are uh, rarely far from uh, the minds of, of many Indian philosophers, at least traditionally. And I think this is another place where um, in our contemporary uh, studies on, on Indian philosophy, there's been a tendency to maybe downplay that because that that was emphasized too much in a previous era. Oh, Indian philosophy, it's very spiritual, mystical, religious, and so on. And without due attention to the fact that there is as much attention to uh, logic, as much attention to things making sense, uh, and to topics um, that aren't necessarily obviously connected with what we would today call spirituality, uh, much more of that than is you know, widely understood. So again, the emphasis has been to move away from that. And yet I think it's nevertheless there, right? And and for many of our students, that's going to be the entry point, right? Because they're interested in questions about meaning and so what, how does this make a difference in my life? And uh, so I wanted to be attentive to that uh, in this book. Well, that so what question is super important. I mean, um, that I think the vast majority of undergrads probably come to religious studies courses. I mean, they realize they realize either consciously or, or, or instinctively that it's not a confessional space. It's not a it's not a space of spiritual nourishment per se. Right. They understand that it's it's um it's it's an academic enterprise, 
having said that, uh, I think um, when we leave room for them to take, not just learn about traditions, but learn from traditions, I mean, that's what gets them gripped. I mean, that, you know, when we tell the Mahabharata in a way, or the Mahabharata, you know, one teeny, 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 tiny vignette of a vignette of the of the Mahabharata. And, you know, Bhishma on a bed of arrows, what the heck is this? Is this mm-hmm. yoga? Is this uh, self-mortification? Is it like, what's going on here? And 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 and, and why would the myth makers, why would this be the case? And, and so I think we're leaving space for that because of course, that is the power of tradition. The power of tradition is its relevance to people on some level. Precisely. Um, and so um, you flesh this, you flesh this obviously out in, in, in a number of the, uh, the papers you touch on it. And if you'd like, we can even talk about sort of the, the table of contents in a moment. But just sort of, um, you're probably well aware of my, 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 my naive questioning shtick that I do on the podcast. But, but <laughs> what are some of the marks? What are some of the shared features of... Uh, let's first talk about the, 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 the how can we call them all Indian philosophy? You know, right. what are what are some of the shared features? Sure. And then perhaps we could talk a little bit more about what makes some difference. And just what you were saying before, I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial that we pay attention to the species, but we also have to not forget the genus. Yes. We also have to not forget what what ties these species together. Right? Yeah. So tell us a Bit more about that if you if you may sure sure absolutely so um so among the shared features um again the exception to most of what i'm saying the the no, notable exception is the vokayata or charvaka school which are you know uh hardcore materialists and a lot of what they say resonates with contemporary physicalist uh thinking um with that important exception and why it's important we'll come back to uh is uh the two closely related concepts of karma and rebirth, which uh, one finds affirmed throughout the systems to greater and lesser degrees. Uh, one could argue that it uh, it's not a big emphasis of mimansa, for example, um, purva mimansa, but but uh, karma certainly is, as, as if we widen our definition of karma to include the somewhat older meaning of the word in terms of ritual action, then it's very much part of mimansa and uh, certainly is hovering there in the background of Nyaya and Vaisheshika and is a very central concern of Sankhya, Yoga, Vedanta, Buddhism, and Jainism. All right? they're, they're all very centrally preoccupied with this and with the quest for liberation. Uh, there's the assumption that liberation on some level involves knowing something, transforming our consciousness in some way, right? There is uh, a cognitive process. There's also a meditative process uh, involved in this for most of the traditions. Uh, And even for those for whom that's less important, there's debate about that. Well, why is that more important? Why is it not more important? So in in some cases, it's at least as a topic of discussion uh, that is there. And then finally, and this is where the Lukayathas kind of come roaring back, uh, skepticism is pervasive uh, if by skepticism we mean asking hard questions. Um, One may occasionally find straw man arguments uh, in the debates across the darshanas, across the the traditions, but uh, more often than not, one finds that uh, even uh, fierce opponents of another perspective have studied it deeply, right? And... uh, um, of course, we have uh, of the very famous cases of, of scholars who studied Buddhism, for example, and then 
use that knowledge to argue against Buddhism. And so uh, there is uh, an understanding that one has to ask the hard questions. And if this larger enterprise that so many of the schools are about, the transformation of consciousness, if that's really a serious goal, then brushing uncomfortable questions aside is not going to work, right? And uh, for people, for anyone who's like a serious practitioner in, in any of these traditions, you know, the, this is what they today call spiritual bypassing, right? It's like, okay, we're not going to look at that. That makes us uncomfortable. But in Indian philosophy, you can't do that because the other schools of thought will make you think about it, right? They will debate and they will say, what about this? Okay, Buddhists, you say there's no self, but you also talk about rebirth what's reborn, what's going on, right? Uh, so those kinds of debates uh, unfold uh, all of the time. Um, and so the skeptic skepticism toward the end of transformation, right? Uh, I would say skepticism, not simply uh, poking holes in the other side, though one also can see that uh, in some of the schools of thought. But uh, there's there's an uh, overall, I there's this search for a transforming knowledge uh, that is there. And uh, I mentioned in my introduction that, that this is not altogether different from Western philosophy, at least of the ancient world. And of course, there's uh, Pierre Hadot's very famous work uh, on uh, philosophy as a way of life and looking at the Greeks and how um, philosophy was very often in the service of a transformative path. There was some kind of practice involved. And this is typically the case with the, the Indic schools as well, uh, sometimes very overtly so, as in yoga, for example, or Buddhism or Jainism. Uh, sometimes, again, that's less obvious if you're looking at Nyaya or Vaisheshika, for example, that, that doesn't come to the foreground. But there are many places where you could see that it's implied, uh, that uh, there, there are these texts, you know, at, at, at the start and at the end, very often of, of uh, the philosophical texts, it will be affirmed that this exercise is being undertaken for the sake of moksha, right? And then they proceed to talk about the different types of materials that make up the world and so on. And it doesn't appear obviously to be connected, but if it's situated in a larger way of life, you could see it could, it could very much be connected. And that's certainly so when we see these as living traditions, uh, which uh, most of them are. Uh, and so uh, the, mo the Traditional darshanas, for the most part, are either still part of living traditions or they have been assimilated to other darshanas that remain as living traditions. So uh, I think uh, this attention to the practical sphere, uh, the transformative effect of philosophy, its situation in a way of life, uh, typically with a soteriological orientation, I think that's shared across most of these traditions. Absolutely. And so say a little bit about what you touched on in terms of the differences and the debates and the features whereby, you know, that define uh, the parameters of Jainism versus Buddhism versus some of the other strands. Absolutely. So, so uh, and this is, of course, where uh, most, most contemporary introductions to Indian philosophy will place their emphasis. And I I aim to do that as well. Uh, so, of course, within the traditions, we get the big dividing line of the Astika, Nastika, right? Vaidika, Avaidika, the, the Vedic and non-Vedic, what might be today called the Hindu and non-Hindu traditions. And that dividing line seems to hinge on whether the Veda, uh, that is the text, is taken as a, an authoritative source of knowledge or not. And there are 
Vedic traditions that are very strongly oriented toward the Veda as a source of knowledge, like Advaita Vedanta, like Mimamsa. And uh, there are traditions where it maybe looks a little more like lip service, but it's nevertheless present, like Sankhya Yoga, for example. Uh, and then, of course, you, you have the traditions that specifically reject Vedic authority. So the Jain tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Lokayata tradition, uh, they say, no, that's not a valid source of knowledge, and in fact, go out of their way very often to critique the Veda. So that's a big dividing line. Uh, the other dividing line is the one I've already mentioned between the Lokayatas and everyone else in terms of acceptance of basically a, a world that goes beyond the senses, right? So things like karma, rebirth, uh, ethics, soteriology, divinities, this, this is ruled out by the Lokayathas. Everyone else affirms it. Uh, it's interesting, if you look at a Jain author like Haribhadrasuri, he uses the terminology of Astika Nastika, but he, for him, an Astika is not someone who affirms the Veda. He's a Jain, so he doesn't affirm the Veda. But for him, an uh, someone who is Astika uh, is someone who affirms the ideas of karma and rebirth. If you reject that, you're a Nastika. And that basically just means uh, the Lokayatas, and uh, depending on how we interpret some Mimamsa texts, maybe some of the Mimamsakas. But um, so you've got those who believe in the Vedas, and you've got that, that dividing line and the dividing line over karma and rebirth. And then you get further refinements of those divisions, right? So um, you have traditions which are uh, affirm the reality of the material world as something that is substantial and with which we need to contend in a serious way. So there you have the Jains, there you have the Vaisheshikas, the Nayayakas, uh, and then you have sort of gradations of a spectrum moving from an affirmation of materiality as real to a de complete denial of that in a tradition like Advaita Vedanta, for example, where uh, the only reality ultimately is Brahman, infinite consciousness, uh, or Yogacara Buddhism, where uh, what we think of as materiality is a projection of consciousness and is, is an experience. Uh, and then you have uh, traditions that are sort of in the middle, right? Uh, early Buddhism, uh, of course, there are different schools of early Buddhist thought, but it, it seems to trend toward a kind of neutral monism, right? It's just not a question the Buddha thought was conducive to edification. Uh, and of course, a big division you get between the Buddhists and everyone else is anatman, right? The no-self concept and what that means exactly. And of course, the, the Buddhists themselves disagree amongst themselves about, about that, right? So you have the Pudgalavadans, right? The personalists. And the uh, they say, well, what we call personhood is the emergence of uh, phenomena from the operation of the five skandhas, the five aggregates. Other Buddhists say, no, that's not a self. The, the Buddha was very clear. There is just no self. Whereas, uh, again, you get back to Vedanta. It's all about self, right? It's all about realizing Atman and what is Atman and why is that important? The Jains too. You know, they have the Jiva, which really is a functional soul that is permanent. It has certain features that never go away. So it's an eternal soul. So you have the Jains and, and Vedantins on one side and, and uh, Nayayakas, people who talk about uh, the self as a substance versus the anti-substantialist views of Buddhism. Um, other differences uh, that are interesting is uh, theism, of course. And we've already briefly mentioned that, how um, you have traditions that affirm a creator deity, right? Uh, sort of um, 
things like Vishishta Dvaita Vedanta, Dvaita Vedanta, a lot of the main school, mainstream uh, devotional schools in Vedanta, they affirm uh, Ishwara, there is a divine reality. Uh, and then uh, you have uh, at least uh, the idea of a creator and sustainer of the universe uh, is absent and mostly rejected in Jain and Buddhist thought. And uh, the Mimamsa tradition is interesting on this too, because it, it doesn't really, it, it sort of postulates devas as, uh, well, okay, if the Vedic ritual is effective, something's making it work. And so maybe those are devas, but they're almost like hypotheticals uh, of, you know, they're, they're playing a subsidiary role to the functioning of the Vedic ritual itself, which is the the thing that actually makes things happen from a Mimamsa point of view. So uh, this whole range of views is there. And again, it's sort of operating in a more or less shared conceptual universe, but how things are understood, we're seeing it varies enormously. Are there material substances? Are there not? Are there selves? Are there not? And you can ask the so what question about every one of these things. Right? Is there God or is there not? And all these, uh, how you answer that, it has soteriological implications uh, all around. Right? Even when you have contrary claims being made, right? there are Buddhists who would say belief in a supreme creator being uh, is very bad for you soteriologically. It creates attachment. You have traditions would say that believing in that being, well, of course we believe in that being because we have absolute devotion to that being and we depend completely and we surrender to that being. And so it's necessary soteriologically. So there's plenty of scope for debate and there, there's a lot of argument across the Indian traditions. And yet, what are they debating? How to get liberated, how to attain a state of pure bliss and freedom from the limitations and problems of life. And that is pervasive uh, throughout, I would say. And even the Lokayatas agree with that. I mean, they want to be happy. Now, for them, happiness is, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, but they also want to be happy. <laughs> so that's universal in the Indian traditions. Tell us about the interplay between duality and non-duality. This is a fascinating one. And this really brings... <laughs> yeah, this... this uh, um, Buddhism comes into this uh, in significant ways, but I mean, we're really talking about the debates among the Vedanta schools here, I think, because on one side you have Advaita Vedanta, which a lot of people in the West who have at least heard of Vedanta, they're thinking about Advaita Vedanta, but that's just one system among many, right? There are multiple systems of Vedanta. They tend to cluster into Advaita and everything else, right? Because you have Advaita, which is non-dual. Uh, duality is an effect of our ignorance. It is of the realm of Maya, the realm of appearance. Uh, but what is really real is non-dual. It is Brahman. It is Nirguna. It's beyond conception. And then you have all the other schools which affirm that the vital element in getting liberation is bhakti. It is this relationship of devotion and surrender and absolute dependence upon the Supreme Being. Advaita Vedanta says, well, the Supreme Being is as real as you or me, which means not really real at all, because that's also part of the realm of duality, part of the realm of maya. You want to go beyond that. Whereas uh, there's no going beyond one's loving relationship with God for the bhakti traditions. And the other schools of Vedanta largely serve, you know, they are theological traditions in the service of the bhakti schools. Again, they operate within the context of a way of life. And so 
You get, uh, of course, the very strong affirmation of duality in the Madhva tradition, uh, Dvaita Vedanta. Duality is fundamental, right? There's God, there's the souls, the jivas, there's the world, and those differences are absolutely essential. They they are uh, foundational to the experience of bhakti, salvation, liberation. All of this occurs uh, among these beings uh then uh you uh but the other issue of course looming at the back of the all the vedanta schools is squaring their affirmations with the proclamations of the upanishads right so you the 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 prasthanatraya the triple foundation the upanishads the brahma sutras and the bhagavad gita and uh, so all of these schools claim those as authoritative texts and uh the reality is you have statements that seem to very plainly affirm non-duality and that very seem to plainly affirm duality in those texts, right? So uh, you have the Advaitins who sort of stake their claim on on the basis of the Mahavakyas, the statements that clearly proclaim non-duality. Then you have to sort of say that the the more dualistic portions of the texts are uh, metaphorical. They're they're, they're teaching you a lesson. They're moving you in the direction of the realization of non-duality. And then you get just the opposite, of course, in in dualism. So you have to explain some Something like aham brahmasmi in a very different way, right? So, well, that's God talking. That's not you, right? So that that's uh, you have a different interpretation than of the same text. And then um, you have the the schools I personally am very fascinated by are the Veda Veda schools, like uh, Vishishtadvaita of Ramanuja, because they're trying to have all of it. And because it's all there in the original text, right? If you're if you're reading the Gita, if you're reading the Upanishads without the aid of a commentary, which of course you should never do from a traditional perspective, but if you were, you would say, well, I see a little bit of both. And then uh, Ramanuja's approach, for example, seems very satisfying then, because uh, yes, there's the difference between the jivas, Ishvara, and the world; these are distinct, and yet they form an organic unity. All of them together make up the reality right that is brahman so we are all uh it's it's more like a part and whole relation we're all part of this larger divine reality and yet like the organs of the body uh each part plays a different role the liver is not the heart right the heart is not the brain so uh we are not god god is not us but we are both part of this dynamic interplay of uh of existence and you see that in a lot of the Vedanta schools. Uh, you see that in uh, Nimbarka, for example. You see that uh, in, in different ways in Vallabhacharya uh, and in uh, Sri Chaitanya, uh, of course. Uh, you know, it's it's a inconceivable identity and difference, right? Achintya Bheda Bheda. So you have that interplay of duality and non-duality, which I think in practice, I think, again, I think it all goes back to practice. If your aim is more contemplative, then non-duality is going to appeal to you, right? Because you want to reach this space where all the differences are resolved and all is one. And a lot of that's very akin to Buddhism as well. Of course, people accuse Shankara of being a kind of a crypto-Buddhist. And if your practice is about the loving relationship with with the divine beloved, uh, then nothing's going to obliterate that it's going you want to intensify that and and uh, heighten that rather than uh, reach a point where you in some sense go beyond it so uh that is a um ongoing interplay and and argument uh, in the in the traditions um 
this is more of a personal observation, I suppose. I don't think I say this in the book. I don't remember if I do or not. But uh, I, uh, I, I've observed in practice that dualists are more non-dualist and non-dualists are more dualist <laughs> than either will tend to let on, right? I, I've met some very devotional, very bhakti-filled Advaitins, and I've met some uh, followers of bhakti, uh, some devotees who are very, very sharp philosophically, very interested in figuring it out and, and articulating it in an intellectual, very jnana kind of fashion. So um, I think this is one of the debates where from an outsider's perspective, it might not even be clear, well, what are you all arguing about, right? So you all believe there's God in some sense, right? You all think that's important in some sense, right? So what's the problem? But of course, the, it goes much, much deeper than that. How uh, conceptualizing the the inconceivable, right? Um, having the transformative knowledge that can lead you to the experience either of pada bhakti, right, supreme bhakti, or of jnana and uh, non-dualistic liberation, that's just essential, right? Uh, getting all of that right is is essential uh, from those mm. perspectives. Fascinating. So given the lengthy gestation of this book, did anything change for you in terms of your thinking? Or tell us a bit about the, about the process or... Perhaps even what was what was impressed upon you by this process, or what perhaps surprised you, or what you know. Tell us about the journey of writing the book. Oh, very good. No, this is yeah because uh, I was first um, offered the contract for this book, uh, in fact, by a pre by an, an earlier publisher, I B Taurus, and there they were subsequently acquired, assimilated by Bloomsbury. So that that shift occurred while I was writing the book, and. The, the invitation initially came from Alex Wright, who I believe is now at Cambridge uh, Press. And uh, the uh, my Jainism book had done well, and uh, I believe it's still doing pretty well. Uh, and uh, so the idea of a wider introduction to Indian philosophy was something Alex thought I would be well suited for. And I was very happy to do it. I took it up. But yes, in the course of 10 years, you read so much. You, you read so many articles and books and uh, learn more. Uh, and uh, I, kept, I kept fixing things. I kept changing things. Uh, and of course, there was a peer review process. And I, I was I had the very good fortune of having some peer reviewers anonymous. I have no idea who they are. But if they're listening, I'm very grateful to all of them because they, you know, a bad peer reviewer will say, well, this, this, this and this is wrong. Right. Or it has this and this problem. And, you know, why is this bad? All the peer reviewers seem to really want the book to be good and to succeed. And so I got very detailed commentary from a number of peer reviewers who I think they had greater expertise in some of the traditions than I did. I, no one touched my Jane material. Everyone said, oh, this is very good. Uh, but uh, I had people weigh in on uh, some of the Buddhist sections. Uh, I had people weigh in on some of what I'd said about Lokayatas and, and uh, Nyaya. Uh, and so I learned from the reviewers and I got those uh, reviews and then I, I thought, well, I don't want to just take their word for it, right? This this is another scholar who has a point of view. So I read up on things and um, I found that at each pass through, it, it strengthened, right? It, it got better. Uh, and so that was a very important part of my process. But another very important part was just my own research uh, in, in other areas um, uh, as this whole 
process was going on. I, I got the offer to write on Hinduism in America, something I very much wanted to do. I focused on that, but then that gave me new insight into the modern material for the Indian philosophy book. Um, I did uh, uh, with my colleague Mike, uh, we did the uh, edited volume on nonviolence in the world's religions. That gave me new insight into that particular aspect of Hinduism, you know, things like Hindu political thought. Uh, the fact that the Arthashastra is discussed at all is an effect of my having done the book on nonviolence because uh, uh, I was oh, yeah, there's political philosophy. We need to say something about it, right? So uh, I, uh, in fact, as I keep reading and keep learning, I'm keenly aware that the, the, this book will date itself eventually. Um, I had already sent the manuscript off to press when I read um, Arvind Mandir's wonderful introduction to Sikh philosophy. I thought, oh, I could have done a whole chapter on Sikh philosophy. There's so much there. I, I managed to just kind of sneak in, uh, you know, a paragraph or two. Uh, but uh, I, I would say, uh, Sikh thought gets neglected uh, in the book, and uh, in fact, uh, I had I'd posted on social media, my book is coming out, and someone read the subtitle, you know, introduction to uh, Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist thought, and someone rather crankily posted on Facebook, uh, "What about Sikhs? You don't think Sikhs are part of Indian philosophy? Or you you think they're Hindus? What?" It's like, no, 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 no. I just don't know enough about it uh, to have written well about it. So it's better to, I think, be silent than to write poorly about something. Uh, and I've mentioned that in the introduction. It's like this is this is a, a lacuna, and there are other lacunae because um, I don't want to undersell my book, <laughs> but. Indian philosophy is enormous, right? It's just like discovering Western philosophy. You know, you're not going to give the same weightage to every important thinker and current of thought just because unless you're going to write a, an encyclopedia or multi-volume uh, work. And I wanted something undergraduates could read and it could be their first taste, maybe, of Indian philosophy and enough to get them excited to then do the uh, more advanced reading and, and uh, read primary sources and delve into it. I should mention I'm also working on a, uh, a companion volume to this one of uh, primary sources, uh, primary sources that are either cited or mentioned in Discovering Indian Philosophy. And that's also going to be coming out from Bloomsbury, and that's that's in the works. And I know those works also already exist, though not as many as there are introductions. Uh, they're just a handful. I know people who still use Radhakrishnan and more, which came back, it came out in, you know, before I was born. Uh, so uh, I, I do see the need for an updated uh, companion work and it'll, it'll go well, right? I'm, I'm, a man, I'm envisioning a course where people are reading the textbook in tandem with the primary sources. So uh, um and I, I might be able to do a little more with some uh, some of these things I, I didn't focus on as much in the textbook. I might be able to, you know, build in some Guru Granth Sahib or something, you know, something there that will will do a little more justice to some of the things that I just didn't have the time or space to uh, to do. But uh, yes, I, learning is humbling, as we all know. And, and uh, so um, I would say one of the things I learned over the 10 years of putting the book together is 
how much there is still to learn about Indian philosophy. And this is why I, I like this term discovering, right? Because now it, could, of course, could be read the wrong way. It could be read as having a colonialist implication. Oh, you're discovering. You know, the white man is discovering Indian philosophy. But I, I mentioned in my uh, introduction, like, that's not what I mean. What I mean is just that excitement whenever you encounter something that is new to you, and I've had Indian students who've told me, you know, I grew up in this culture, but I didn't know about all of these things. And so there's that excitement of discovery and the hope, hope that that will lead to further reading and more in-depth study later on. Well, uh, I mean, a number of, thank you for sharing that process. Uh, I'll share just a couple of random comments. Um, as I recall uh, from what you said, the, it, it's great that if I understood correctly, the, the peer reviewers gave substantive suggestions and constructive feedback and among the intelligent critiquing is kindergarten yes this is the beginning this is not difficult to do it's yeah. not difficult to do uh, among the intelligent obviously among those who, who who the critical faculties are in place and you know the, 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 you know the, uh, fault finding isn't difficult i mean there's always room for growth and there's always uh preference and a way to do things better but what's really brilliant is okay positing positing a path forward a suggestion i mean that though that's the that's the real goal that comes out of peer review um in my view um uh, in terms of um I mean, yeah, you're, it won't, uh, the best books are beginnings. No one's going to write, here is all of Indian philosophy and, you know, there aren't enough pages in the world, <laughs> right? And so, so I like the idea. I mean, this is coming from an academic perspective as someone who enjoys teaching and enjoys introducing, you know, folks to material. In many ways, you're analogous to a tour guide. <laughs> Right. right. You're curating uh, something for them. You're taking them through a museum and, and you're going to see certain exhibits. Clearly, uh, the Royal Ontario Museum's exhibits on ancient Egypt is not the totality of ancient Egypt, but it's it's offering uh, it's offering a, a, a way in. So both as a teacher and scholar, but also somebody who's um, um, who uh, creates and markets courses to the public for sustenance. Um it has to be appealing. I mean, yes. the titles matter. Uh, uh, visuals matter. Uh, I used to quite resent uh, all of this. And then I, I realized, if, well, of, of course, the, the meal has to look appetizing, obviously. It doesn't matter how delicious and nutritious it is if it doesn't look appetizing. So, you know, the captivating image, discovering Indian philosophy, you know, one gets a sense of an adventure, an intellectual adventure. Yes. And uh, that, that at least was clear to me. Uh, anyhow... I'm grateful. I, well, I was aiming for that. So I'm grateful to that that came through. Good, good, good. Um, it'll, it'll just all depends on how much coffee is in the mug on any given day. But yeah, I picked up on that. So it's good. Um, as, we, as, we, um, as we come to about time for, for our podcast today, was there anything else on the book uh, or anything at all that you wanted to touch on before we close? Um, only that uh, I think that this kind of study uh, getting excited about Indian philosophy, learning about Indian philosophy uh, is extremely important in our world today because we've become so polarized politically, religiously, culturally, I mean, in all kinds of ways. Uh, we found all kinds of ways to create barriers to understanding and to feel badly about one another. And for 
I'm thinking about my average students who are, you know, American, um, Western readers, but even readers in India who might feel distanced from their traditions for whatever reason, that to be able to view something different from one's own thought process and background and to find it appealing and to learn from it, even if one is not going to, you know, embrace it fully, or maybe, maybe they will, maybe someone will read this book and decide to become a Buddhist or a Vedantan or a Jain. I don't know. That's not the intent, but to cultivate a world where we have more appreciation for difference and for one another and to say, you know, I don't know if I completely understand this. I don't know if I completely agree with it, but it's brilliant. Oh, this is this has given me a whole new way of thinking about life. Uh, I think that that's something we really need to cultivate more of. Uh, that we there, there's too little uh, genuine understanding and uh, too much uh, trying to defeat the other guy and uh, show how well they're wrong and we're right and and that's it. Uh, Poor scholarship, I would say, uh, fails to take into account the things that might count against the thesis one is trying to advance, right? You're trying to say something, and there are some inconvenient truths out there. Say, well, I'm not going to talk about those because they work against what I'm trying to say. Uh, if people do that, that's more like sort of the spin that you see on very biased. Uh, very picking. Networks. Yeah, exactly. So the thing to do is say, okay, now this is also true. Now... How do I take account of that in my way of thinking? And the Indian philosophers model this, I think, extremely well uh, because they do play out the implications of their claims and of one another's claims. And they engage with one another very deeply and they studied one another's works and uh, one another's traditions. And uh, there's some fine examples throughout the history of Indian philosophy of scholars who had an affiliation to a particular darshana, a particular perspective, but wrote bhashyas, wrote commentaries on multiple other texts, uh, and not with the aim of showing they were wrong or silly, but of kind of deepening knowledge. Uh, so uh, this is something I, I think we really need to promote. I think a lot of us in the academy are working to do that. But uh, again, I, I tried to make the book as accessible as possible, because even with good intentions, if we use too much jargon, uh, if we make assumptions that are safe for say graduate students to make or professors to make, uh, we're not reaching the wider public. I'm I'm a really big believer in sort of public facing uh, work because the need is great. And that's why you've been on this podcast four times, and that's <laughs> why the New Books Networks exists, and this is why uh, the, the the mandate of the network and the mandate of my own brand of scholarship and engagement they 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 fit like a glove because it's about inviting as many people as are interested into the conversation yes. without dumbing it down. I mean, yes. gone are the days when erudition means uh, incomprehensibility. Yes. <laughs> but the intelligence means that, you know, it's, 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 it's just too complicated. No, it, we can invite people to the conversation. And, and I mean, I mean, this is the world's largest podcast conglomeration uh, because people are interested in these ideas Very good. for no other, for no other reason. Um, the other thing is uh, that I, I want to touch on that's it's extremely important. I mean, some of us, uh, some of us uh, are are naturally more geared towards it than others, but I think all of us need to develop what I'm hearing and what you're saying is a sort of multivalent, multi-perspectival thinking. Insofar as, look, you're not going to get the bird's eye view. The beauty of a gem is actually is actually. Um, uh, it's actually sort of turning it 
and seeing the different faces. That's really the beauty of the gem type thing. Uh, for example, in my, you know, scholarship's not perfect. Whose is? It's not nothing. Critique That's away. Right. Improve. By all means, improve upon it. By all means. Thank you. you have my blessing. <laughs> Go and improve upon it. But but uh, for, for me as a strategy, part of it to perhaps offset a bit of a, a legacy of scholarship and part of it because of my own interest in penchant, um, I love reading Ithyasa uh, Purana, you know, the, the epics and the, the Puranas through a literary lens. So synchronic study is where I live, and it's part of the mandate of my scholarly mission. The, the, the imperative and and, and the, the use, the, 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 the importance of synchronic study, not because I'm daffy enough to believe these texts were written in an afternoon by Sage Vyasa, but clearly, many of these texts are a product of um, clearly a, a, a lengthy diachronic process. Uh, nevertheless, you know, I recently came from a conference in Dubrovnik on the Sanskrit epics and, and Puranas, and of course there are insights to be found uh, without question among my colleagues who are doing very important diachronic work on the text. Um, but the difference is that pointing to the different layers of the text is more now uh, appreciated as a feature, not a bug of the Puranic corpus, insofar right. as, wow, we now have access to the life of tradition. Look at the overlay in this Karna story. Look at the X, you know, X, Y, Z, P, Q. And, and just, yes, you know, close one eye and look at the text in a sort of synchronic lens. Close the other eye, look at it through a diachronic lens. Uh, they're both going to be important. You may have a penchant for one or may want to prioritize one, but, um, uh, but without question, uh, various methods and perspectives uh, are necessary. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And the, this, is, uh, this is one of the things that have sort of drawn me to the study of Jain philosophy through the years is the Anikantavada. I mean, I really think that is true, right? The, the reality is is greatly varied and complex, and to uh, fully appreciate anything, we need to view it from the many possible sides. Well, I mean, we can go on and on and on, but listen, like you, people have been, some of the brightest minds of our times have been toiling for decades to reconcile Einsteinian physics with quantum physics. And yeah. it may well be just, we're looking at different orders of reality and they're just, we, we need to actually make, it's, it's only possible to, to, to view reality through these different peoples. And there may not be a sort of a global vision that has to cohere at all levels of reality. I mean, it may well be that depending on the order of reality you're looking at this, these are the operant rules or, or the MO. So anyways, I obviously could talk to you for hours, uh, but our listeners have lives. Uh, I hope they've enjoyed this as much as I have. Thank you for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you. I'm very grateful to you for having me and for your your appreciation for the book. And uh, I guess the last thing I should say is, you know, go go by discovering Indian philosophy. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> yes, right now. <laughs> Got the podcast notes right now. It's it's, it's affordable. Uh, Bloomsbury. Um, yeah. So thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. For those listening, uh, thanks for listening. Um, thanks for being interested in ideas and supporting what we do here at the New Books Network. And um, until next time, keep well, keep listening, keep, keep engaging in such ideas and keep discovering Indian philosophy and beyond. Take care.